Welcome, podcast episode number three. Today we're going to talk about Freakonomics, uh, the book. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, uh, it's basically a book about uh, economic thinking, but not really. Uh, it really just kind of explores the hidden side of everything. And it it's really, uh, it takes like really popular examples and it shows the cause for them that nobody even thought about and how like to kind of expand your thinking. And just well, kinda, it's more examples like you wouldn't yeah. even think of, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah you, like most of the examples he gives that are like well known, like you wouldn't even think of like this being a reason that this happened. But uh, it's 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 really interesting. So uh, let's go to like Amano. the conventional Amano wisdom it. behind it or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So in the introduction, it's called. Oh wait, Eric, did you want to cover the hidden side of everything? No, no, you can do it. Um, so in the introduction, we're kind of, um, Levitt kind of tells us about incentives and, um, how we weigh different incentives. So, um, like economically, how would we benefit morally and societally? So, um, it's just, it's just like what, it's like how we make choices. Yeah. And like, like our motive. He, mm-hmm. also, he also talks about conventional wisdom often being wrong and like common knowledge is often wrong sometimes with like bigger concepts because people kind of just accept it as a truth, but they won't really do their own research and thinking. And that's what he kind of does for us as an example in this, uh, in this book. And so you can see it's really interesting. And I think while okay, we'll, we'll get to like our favorite examples later. But he also yeah, but um, make sure... I, I think people make decisions based on what they think is going to benefit them the most. Right. And I think that's how the whole idea of incentives stems from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he also manages to like differentiate between correlation and causation, which often he thinks like gets confused. So the chapter, the chapters of each, or like each chapter name, is like not obscure, but like it's really interesting, like really thought provoking. So it's like chapter one. It's called, What Do School Teachers and Sumo Wrestlers Have in Common? Oh, and Devin, before you get there, uh, I'm just going to explain one example. So I'm just going to explain correlation, but not causation in further detail. Right. So, like, for example, if the the great stock market crash in 1929 and the Great Depression, the great stock market crash in 1929 did not cause the Great Depression. It was the it was the economic turmoil or economic, uh, the like, the negative economic things during going on in the economy during this time that caused the great stock market crash in 1929 and therefore caused the great depression. So the stock market crash in 1929 and great depression are not correlated. Yeah. So like, it's like things like that. It's like common knowledge that people will commonly, like people will assume or just accept yeah. it as the truth. So let's, yeah. go to, let's go to the first example. He talks about is, uh, what the school teachers and sumo wrestlers have in common, which I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a little, it's a little obscure title, but I mean, it's really interesting the way he explains it. Mm-hmm. So uh, what he's talking about in this example is like cheating. So in the Chicago public school system and in other public school systems, uh, standardized tests are basically mandated. So a teacher's performance and different like uh, bonuses that they might get are all kind of based off of that. It's greater incentive. Yeah. Right. So- um, actually, do you guys want to go over maybe the preschool example first? Yeah, the daycare center? Yeah. All right, yeah, you can go. You can go over that one. Um. So basically, 
there was a social experiment conducted where um, they were figuring out how to get parents to pick up their children earlier. So um, basically what happened was that they decided to instill a $3 late fee. And actually that encouraged parents to want to leave their kids more because it alleviated them um, the moral burden of, oh, well, you know, they were just watching my kid for free because um, now they're, they're paying for it, obviously. And then um, the economic burden and the fact that they could stay longer at work where they'd earn more than just $3. So in the fact that, um, you know, the opportunity cost, they kind of, the, the opportunity cost of staying at work now outweigh the opportunity cost of um, picking up their child at the specific time. Yeah, so the incentive basically backfired on them. Mm-hmm. These people were like, it's only $3. Like, who cares about that? It's not like it's $100 or something. They don't have a greater... What I'm saying is that they don't have a greater incentive. They don't have... The incentive doesn't motivate them to pick their kids up on time because it's only $3. And, like, most people would have thought that, like, $3, like, especially people who don't like to spend money, most people would have thought that, like, $3 would definitely get parents to come earlier. So I think uh, when they conducted the study, they were surprised also. Yeah. Yeah, and did you did you did you uh see the example about the anti smoking thing? Yeah, the syntax. Yeah, like how uh in order because of the of the moral incentives that uh people have, they're they're trying to make cigarettes cost more so that cigarette smokers are just like maybe it gives them greater incentives to start quitting because of all the money they're wasting on these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and like, uh, there's a quote in the book that said like, if something's worth getting, uh, it's worth cheating for. So, uh, like this amount of people will always try and gain an advantage, however they can really. So, uh, let's talk about the first example, the school teachers and sumo wrestlers one. It's like the first big one. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one kind of talks about cheating. So, uh, like the Chicago public school system is the one that they talk about, and. Uh, teachers are basically like you know like standardized testing and things like that. You basically have to get standardized tests, and the teacher's performance is judged solely, well, not solely, but like mainly off of that. And if the teacher's students perform poorly, then she can get her job taken away, bonuses, whatever. So, uh, some teachers were super desperate for their students because they were from like uh like a poor place or the school system wasn't good. So the teacher would basically cheat for the students. And there were teachers who, of course, like they got fired and things like that. Yeah, one of them even just wrote the correct answers on the board. Like they, they expected the kids not to tell their parents. But they're about like that. third graders, so of course. You're yeah. Gonna... Yeah, isn't that that's, dumb on yeah, the teacher's that's, part? That's so stupid. It's not, not a good uh, honest thing to do. You can do it more like conspicuously. Yeah. Like yeah. But I think that like with these high stakes testing it goes back to which incentive um is kind of outweighing the other because i feel like the competing incentives do you really want to morally um you know put yourself at jeopardy or would you rather put your job at jeopardy or yeah. your new promotion at jeopardy yeah, yeah they don't want to be unemployed so right. they're going to do whatever they can to stay yeah, and they even right. had an experiment where they had um they were like trying to conduct experiments to see which teachers were cheating the most and so they, they basically mandated a bunch of testing and they had uh, teachers 
give the test to their students and then they would check them and then without telling the teachers they would give another test and then check those and see correlations and strings of answers. Yeah, there's like patterns in the answers, yeah. right? And so there's so that's their mode. And then for sumo wrestling, sumo this this was interesting. The Japanese sumo is like I think it's their national sport. They take a lot of pride in it with like uh, it instills like human value, strength, power, and all this other stuff. So uh, it's a really big deal for them. And they take uh, like your sumo status will basically declare how much money you make, how much you get to eat, how big your entourage is, like all this stuff. So uh, there's like a big uh, competition, and uh, the people that will compete against each other oftentimes like it's interesting to see so they're really strict on cheating like because especially because uh sumo is affiliated with like a lot of moral values that yeah. they don't like cheating there is not tolerated at all so but what they found out was that if somebody so there's uh these matches where you have to basically qualify and that'll like determine your status so if somebody who like getting your eighth win yeah, you mean so somebody who was like eight and six, I think it was, versus seven and seven, you have to get eight wins. So the person who has eight wins has less to lose than the person who has seven wins because the person with seven wins loses, then they're like, they're really like, what's the word for them? Like, they've just. So there was like bribes yeah, and stuff that yeah, went they've on. Lost everything. So people would like not fall down on the yeah, ranking. So you would assume that the person who was eight and six would win. And that's what like the standing said. But. In terms, like, when the person who was seven and uh, seven actually had to win, seventy something percent of the time they did win, even though regular regularly they would only win like around forty forty something percent of the time, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And then also, um, after like a big cheating thing might come out, uh, then like these percentages uh change too to reflect that. So it shows like corruptness basically in the sumo in sumo wrestling. Yeah, because like everyone's g- going to want to do everything they can to get an edge. Like, have you? Do you guys follow yeah. baseball? No. You do. No. Oh, uh, so there's this guy on the New York Mets. His name is Robinson Cano. He's being he's being paid thirty million dollars a year for the next seven years or so or something like that. And then he he ended up actually a couple of days ago. It was found out that he took performance enhancing drugs, which is probably explains why he did so right. well last year. But uh. Yeah, so he took he so like it basically explains in the more overarching point that all players in sports are gonna do whatever they can, or like the ones that you know don't mind the cheating are gonna do whatever they can to get. I think I actually heard this on the news. Like two sumo wrestlers that exposed a bunch of other sumo wrestlers for cheating. Within like they were killed, right? They were both in the hospital. Yeah, they died. No, they died at like the yeah. They died only a couple hours apart, which was like really sketchy because they had they had gang. Yeah. I think it's a little bit more than sketchy. Yeah, and they had they had gang ties as well. It's a crime. So you know, there's a whole yeah. there's a whole bunch of stuff. So it shows how like people will cheat just to give um like other people an advantage. Like the teachers will cheat to give their students an advantage, and sumo wrestlers might cheat to give other sumo wrestlers a chance. Well, they're reaping their own benefit. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what I think it is. It's the incentive of if I help this person, what am I going to get in turn? Yeah, like think about it. If the teacher standpoint, they're benefiting themselves, but they're also benefiting the students by getting them higher. Yeah, right. sumo wrestlers uh, cheat to help others sometimes, like other sumo wrestlers. Yeah, exactly. So in one way, or it, it, it's kind of like you know, 
you're not it's not like it's not being selfish it's actually benefiting others um i think it's helping it for a selfish purpose though yeah because bad intentions yeah yeah i think it's helping with bad intentions even in the sumo wrestler fact that they are bribed to lose yeah i think that like most of the time like like with the teachers and I guess some of the sumo wrestler examples, they have decent intentions, but I mean, they're, it's like morally wrong. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah, it's not. It it help, it just gives them you know financial benefits. Yeah. Yeah, like because if you look at the numbers, they were talking about this in the book. Uh, the some of the people make around maybe more than two hundred grand a year from sumo wrestling. And then if you follow down only like 10 rankings or so, that cuts in half. So like that's only $100,000. And then if you go even further than that to the people who are like at the bottom or not even ranked, they're making around maybe minimum wage to $3,000 a month. So it's not really it's not really that great yeah. for them. Uh, should we go to chapter two? Yeah. Yeah. The, and that one is called the Ku Klux Klan and Real Estate Agent. I thought this, this one's one interesting cool too. too. This one, this one talks about uh, inside information and mm-hmm. how important it is. So uh, I guess somebody else can explain this one. Yeah, mommy, do you um, Okay. So basically, um, it just compares kind of the vernacular between um, the KKK and real estate agents. So in the fact that the reason why the KKK was just so infamous and in a way um, not successful but um, had a lot of influence was because um, their vernacular was kept very secret. And I think that the same thing goes for real estate agents. That's the reason why I think they're so effective. But once their informational advantage is kind of taken away from them, um, so is their like influence and their power. So do you guys want to talk about that? Yeah, so it basically, the chapter two, the whole, it goes into a story about this guy named Stetson Kennedy. And he, it, this was really interesting because he actually infiltrated the 1940s KKK by teaming up with this other guy and then who was in, actually in the KKK who would report inside information to him. And then Stetson Kennedy would go then on a talk show and then discreetly publish all these secret details like such as like the kkk's password or their signal signs to determine if someone was a kkk member and he he would like he because this this provide this talks about like the informational advantage of how the kkk had all the information and they had uh they had an advantage because people didn't know about all this but as this information was revealed they started to begin that advantage began to deteriorate deteriorate so yeah like they have a lot of a lot more inside information than the person whose house they're trying to sell. Like for example, um, they might tell you like just take this deal quickly because, um, like you're you're not gonna find a better deal. They might say something like that, but on average, the like a real estate agent who's selling their own house would put their house on the market for like ten days longer to try and get a better deal. And so you know it's all about inside information and like information that the like the consumer, like the common people don't know, but the people up top know. And now once that information is basically spread to everyone, then um then there is like there isn't really 
as much of a gap anymore, and you're all on the same plane, pretty much. Yeah. Well, that was in the past, right? Be- because, like, a lot of people have all this Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Now. Before, this is before, but now, now, because, like, the internet and everything, uh, this information is, like, readily available. Yeah, because the internet changed everything. So, like, everyone just has a basic idea, and no one, like, real estate agents are just you know taking advantage of yeah them. and i think that just goes all back even though i know that at the beginning um the author says that there's no theme i just feel like the theme is yeah. um incentive and i think that um yeah. the real estate agents they kind of have an incentive to keep you in the dark because um like they want to get the deal done as fast as they can and can they make more revenue selling a new house or staying with you and um are they, are they going to make more that like that way if that makes sense yeah, like, like, yeah they want to get not the commission to spend a whole bunch of, ex- of extra effort with money ads and ad, like things like that just to make an extra like 125 dollars in commission like it's like it's not worth it for them so yeah they have motives to do other things yeah that's a smaller incentive yeah definitely. yeah it's comparative incentives mm-hmm yeah, so that really leads into chapter three, which is why do drug dealers still live with their moms? So does someone want to uh, talk about that? So uh, in this chapter, Levitt basically talks about how conventional wisdom is oftentimes wrong and that there, there's basically a, misconce- a, a misconception that uh, that most drug dealers are like super rich, but in reality, they don't really get uh, as much of the profit like uh, only two two point two percent of the members in the Black Disciples were making more than half the uh, half the profit, and a majority of them in the nineties lived with their moms, and so like a lot of crack so, sellers. Met- yeah. Okay. So the black you have to uh, yeah. So the Black Disciples were a crack gang, and you know they were they were based in Chicago, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of crack sellers means more competition, and more competition uh, will result in. Uh, less salary so therefore your job's not really going to pay well right yeah because there's more people like so if a lot of people are willing and able to do a job then there's going to be more competition so less profit for now, this everyone. was an interesting example i think uh Amani, if you want to talk about this example this was interesting what happened um why don't you start it off and then i will just help you along the one with the um Sushi Adventure Tech or something. Okay. Um, So basically what happened was that um, Dr. I think Sudhir went out and he decided to do almost like a socioeconomic or socio, um, yeah, economic status survey. And he came across a gang. And the gang, so he decides, um, he, okay, so he, surveys the gang and then he gain he um gains their trust which i thought was kind of cool and then um he basically sees how um the levels of the drug dealing work where the foot soldiers they almost make nothing but they're kind of lured by the um economic um incentive and the social incentive of you know being the top of the gang um to kind of do that job even though it's very dangerous yeah so he met a gang leader named jt um 
who ran the Black Disciples, actually. And JT was a college grad who had some work experience. So that's what made him qualified to be the gang leader because he had like that business experience, all all that like corporate side of it. So he let Sudir study his gang and everything around it. So people like JT, they were making $100,000 a year. And the people above JT would make around $500,000 tax free. Yeah. And yeah. So if you think about it, they're tight, like, Normally, if you're making a one hundred thousand dollars salary, that probably decreases to like seventy, eighty thousand. Yeah, yeah. So he's almost making like one thirty if he had a regular job. Yeah, exactly. So that's six figures. So that's pretty good. But um, the people who worked under him, some of them were only making around three dollars an hour. So that's that's significantly less than right. minimum wage. But I think they were just served by the kind of incentive of being where JC is right now. Yeah, so it really t- show, goes to show how crack dealing and corporate America are actually really similar because all JT used strategic business strategies. He had he kept a financial transaction book of all the yeah, sales he had made. He was really financially organized. He was yeah, financially it, literate. He it was like it was if you like go and watch uh, our first podcast on Rich Dad Poor Dad. This guy was kind of like Neo Saki. That yeah, it's it's not like super willy nilly like people might. Make it seem like people are just selling drugs with no strategy, and they're making a bunch of money. It's really kind of the opposite. Like it, it's a whole yeah. But yeah, you need skills. I think that it was kind of cool that they even kind of ran it past retirement, where um they were paid like like you know how um people get like retirement funds or um like pension. Yeah, exactly. Like pension? Um, and even like the drug dealers, they kind of got that too which I thought was, like, kind of insane because I thought it was always so cutthroat. But, yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I was very fascinated with that. Yeah. Well, drugs are also in high demand, so isn't that easier to sell? High because, demand, like, yeah, but there's a lot of people selling it, so that makes uh, demand yeah. go down. Yeah, but do you think there's a lot of competition yeah, among that? Depending because, on where, you know, oh, if, like, sure. if you look at, like, a yeah, TV depending show or something, from. They're just like giving it to them. It's Depending not really a sale. From, there's high competition or low competition. Well, what did the do? Drug dealers use the strategy of like maybe giving it to them first for free no to get idea. them addicted. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I've never <laughs> taken drugs, so I don't really know. But yeah. <laughs> Should we go to chapter four. What? Yeah. This one, so it this really one leads into uh, where have all this the one, criminals this one gone? Was my favorite example. All right. Um, about the nineties really crime spree. So basically in the in the nineteen nineties in the US or like in the early nineties, late eighties, that whole era, crime was like really bad. Like it was increasing like exponentially. And yeah, the crime rate was just terrible. So everyone was like really kind of like they were scared. So they started implementing new policies, right? So um the police strategies were changed. Uh, police got like you know they're trained to use new tactics. Different laws were created, and so eventually after that happened, the crime rate dropped. So everyone was like, "Hey, these new laws and police tactics are the reason that the crime was dropping." But that wasn't necessarily true in uh, Levitt's eyes. Levin, Levitt thought that the '90s crime rate dropped because of Roe v. Wade in the '70s, which is like really confused like i remember like when i first read it i was like what the hell is he saying because i was really confused because those two things have nothing to do with each other 
especially because mm-hmm. they're like 20 years apart too. So I was like, how could that deal with the 90s crime through them? As he explained it, it made more sense to me. So he basically said like Roe v. Wade, uh, so Roe v. Wade basically just legalized abortion in the U.S. And so um, oftentimes it, like people who were trying to get abortions were people who came from like impoverished communities. So they were more likely to become criminals. But or like the kids were, were more were, were more likely to become criminals, but because now they could get abortions, that whole generation of criminals just wasn't born. So then in the 90s, when that generation would have eventually reached the age where they started committing more crimes, it just didn't happen because they weren't even born. So that was really interesting. And nobody credited Roe v. Wade with that. I mean, it's still just like a theory, but still, I thought it was really interesting how like he was able to like expand his thinking that far and yeah was, yeah yeah that's so yeah. out of the box that's actually honestly that's the reason he's the reason why i applied to you chicago because i love levitt there's literally nothing i feel like there's nothing wrong with this theory yeah it's a pretty it's a pretty like reasonable theory well, it makes honest. sense honestly it does make sense uh, because if you think about it, all the people who get abortions usually, they probably are not ready to right, have a Right, right, because they don't so want to have a kid. They they're might, not financially yeah. there yet, or they're not in yeah. another way. Kind of. like, and, like, in the or trial. Like a single um, parent, or, like, they're a teenager and, like, or in something. the trial, even a Roe. Well, Roe is, like, her, uh, the names they gave to her in the trial. Like, Roe basically uh, was living pretty poorly, so she had to give her kids up for adoption. Uh-huh. Which is why she's... Yeah, so once they legalized abortion, the crime rate yeah. dropped so low. Right, and it was all the kind of would-be criminals and the fact that, like, it's the people from the low income and the people maybe who felt neglected, right? Yeah, to think they could get abortion legally and for cheap. Well, not cheap, but, like, cheaper. Yeah, and it's just so relevant, too, because there's, with this, yeah. um, like, with this election going on. And I think um, the new Supreme Court just, justice coming in... Um, yeah, that What's might uh, increase the crime rate. Amy Comey Barrett. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, they're going to be using this study to what to decide whether to overturn this case. But nobody credited Roe v. Wade with it. So like, if yeah. the crime rate increases again, they're going to be confused, and then I don't know. Maybe maybe Freakonomics book sales will go up. Yeah, I don't, they, they should yeah, really read Freakonomics again. <laughs> because yeah, that'd be interesting. <laughs> you know, that actually be really interesting. Like, let's say, uh, like let's say like they repeal some parts of abortion. And then crime rates go up like twenty years from now. That would be interesting. Well, it is still subjective, right? Because like even there, there are still like some out there who who decide not to have an abortion when they're like right. when they're contemplating it, and then their kids end up. Being, but I think like, because really then successful. also, um, it was like newly legalized, so I guess a lot of people kind of jump not jump on it, but like a lot of people were just like, "Let me just take this while I can." You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. Yeah, so, because, like, if you think about it logically, I a person who, like, let's say the father abandons the mother, and then the mother's, like, she's she has, she develops a drinking problem and a drug problem, versus a kid who grows up with, like, healthy parents who are really good or nice personalities, you, you'd rather, you, you'd think that the person Wait, is this chapter two, five? The child, the yeah, child that's kind of part of chapter five, too, but go ahead. Yeah, well, that's where right, let's, go, let's go to chapter you know five. What makes a perfect parent? So, Eric, you can explain this one because you kind of already started. Yeah, so chapter five is really about, you know, how it, it's who the parent is, not really what, who, like, 
It's how the parent is, I mean, not who the parent is. So what I mean by that is how children who grow up in a safe community, like with loving parents that are good people rather than someone who grows up with parents that are like maybe have been in prison for 10 years, have a drug problem, have a drinking problem. The people that grow up with the good parents, they're more likely to succeed. And, you know, it's very few that come out of these abandoned families that actually ended up that end up succeeding. And Levitt basically talks about how parents are misguided and they, they, they're always going to do what's best for their kids. Like the ones, like what, what I was talking about with uh person with the persons or like the two different people. So for example, if you have, if you have a gun and. Oh, like, okay. So, uh, one idea that he presented was, is a swimming pool more dangerous than a gun? Because uh, a parent might not let their kid go to someone's house if they own a gun. But there's more pool accidents and deaths uh, in these kind of situations. So that's, and they're more, that's more likely to happen than for the child to suffer from a gun uh, injury. Mm-hmm. So Levitt explains that like people are more afraid of immediate risk versus something that like we don't have control over. Like Immediate risk would be like, let's say like you were robbed. Like, like Let's say you were part of like or you, you were a victim of an armed robbery, people would be more afraid of that happening to them than, like, them being diagnosed with cancer. So, um, yeah, Levitt, Levitt basically talks about this idea. Yeah. So he wanted, to, he wanted to analyze the topic of how uh, parents matter. So he picked, like, he picked two boys to go off of. So he picked, one was about uh, a white kid. He grew up in Chicago suburbs with uh, good parents, and he was a pretty good student. And the second one was a black kid who was born in Florida, whose mother abandoned him when he was really young, and his dad was an alcoholic and would beat him. And that kid did really poorly in school and decided to sell drugs. And uh, most people think, like, the first one's going to do really better, or, like, a lot better. But uh, they both ended up going to Harvard, I believe. But... No, I no, no. The first one no, I think too. they both ended up in the No, they both went to Harvard. Harvard. Yeah, they both became, I think, Harvard. They, yeah, like Harvard economists, Yeah, they right? both went to Harvard. But the first kid became the Unabomber, and the second kid became uh, what is economist. That? He's basically like... <sighs> he's just like a really bad criminal. Alright, I'm gonna... Yeah, I thought, yeah, I yeah. thought he was a really and, uh, good criminal. They went to Harvard. Or they both went to Harvard, but then the second one became an economist who they're later going to talk about in this book, too. Yeah, his name was Roland. Um, what's his name? His name was Roland, right? He was like a famous economist that Levitt referred to a lot in the book. Yeah. Of his ideas. He worked with him yeah. or something. Oh, okay. So, guys, wait. This is what Ian Bomber is. It's the, it's the man who's responsible for numerous male bomb- bombings of innocent people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's a criminal. But I think like male bombings. (laughs) Yeah, he went to Harvard. Wait, yeah, he like like you know you mail packages with bombs in them. Oh, that was him. (laughs) Oh, Oh, I heard the you. Oh, Oh, I didn't know that was him. Rush Hour. That's interesting. Devin, you ever see that scene in Rush Hour where uh you know like that criminal puts the bomb in the place and then Jackie Chan (laughs) you know comes in. Dude, that's crazy. <laughs> that was him. Damn, that's interesting. Why did Why did you think that uh, you no, thought it was, was a good thing? thing. I, yeah, I thought we just something. didn't know what it was. <laughs> no, I knew. I knew it was like a. Wait, so thing. they went to Harvard? They both he, went, yeah, to Harvard, went to Harvard. Yeah, he did. I don't think so. I literally could have swore. So somebody, dude, wait, hold on. I'm gonna look this up. I literally could have swore he went to Harvard. 
I forgot his like, name. Yeah. It was like a really long name too. Yeah. Oh God, he looks terrible. <laughs> but then again, going back on University the topic, of Michigan um, and Harvard. So yeah. Yep. Really? Damn. That's that's, that's crazy. a good answer. Damn, damn. So he's still a smart dude. He's just really a terrible person. All right, all right. I, I wonder what I caused that, though. To, let's get back to it. That's interesting. I wonder what caused that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the foreshadowing big idea of what Levitt is saying is that most of the things that matter in parenting are determined before a child is born. And what that basically means is that a child's success is, pro- is usually, typically going to be based off the who the who the who their parents are who like the type of environment they're in like if they're living in the suburbs rather than like living in a uh in like a crack house or something so it's who the parents are as individuals the occupation Mm -hmm. that doesn't matter and also i think that was um he mentioned genetics which i thought was a little bit i wasn't out there but it's because it makes sense but also it's something that's like so far out of your control yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Th- doesn't that really lead into chapter six? Because it's perfect. Oh, right, right, right. Part yeah. Two. So it, uh, the name of the chapter is called "Perfect Parenting Part Two, or "Would a Rashanda by any other name smell as sweet?" So it chapter six was all about whether the name of a child matters. Like, one of the examples Levin brought up was how some guy at NYC named his sons both winner and loser. And you know what's ironic about this is that the son, the kid named Winner, he actually ended up being a criminal while the loser, or, or like, you know, what he was named, became a successful like police a officer. Thing, though? No, this is no, no, real. No, no, no. This is a real, real thing. This is real? real yeah. Thing. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> The people at the police station called yeah, the guy. Yeah, I mean, apparently he had so many kids, like, he just didn't care. That's crazy. That's yeah. actually crazy. Imagine being named loser, dude. That must be terrible. Wait, wait, so, so listen to listen to what happened next. Because I think this is where it gets even more crazy. Okay, oh, you want to explain that? So, Winner ends up becoming a criminal. And, oh, sorry, go, go ahead, okay, go ahead. I, I explained that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, so, I, I, I mean, yeah. I thought that that was just insane that psychologically, you know, one guy is always called a winner, and yet I feel like he's losing in life. And then the other guy is called loser. And, like, it doesn't affect him because he became even more successful. It just goes to show, like, some things that people think matter, like their names, like, actually <laughs> Wait, think about it, though. Would loser end up? try to catch his brother. I don't know. He might have. That's interesting. Because he's a criminal and a loser's the police officer. Or like... Dude, what was this guy thinking? But hey, he did a successful social experiment. So you know what? Props to him. <laughs> he, he, the winner's dude, arrested I would at just, the family if gathering. I would, named loser, dude, I would ask people to call me Lou. There's no way. Imagine, imagine graduation, dude. Graduation must have been so terrible for that kid. Loser something. Yeah, Yeah, and he really goes into more detail about uh, how a name can really affect your life. So he talks about, like, you know, hypothetical white names versus black names, according to Levitt. So 
he talks about like somebody, someone named like Gary or John, rather than someone named like Roshanda, which is really the uh, the the like the the title of chapter six. So he goes to show how uh, he he statistically families who give these children like Roshanda type type names were from low income, low education, and poor backgrounds that really had a drastic effect on them in the future. While parents like the sound of names that seem successful. So an example could be like Ronald. Sounds Albert. like he owns a hotel down the street. Yeah, like, you know, uh, you know, if your last name ended with like Holiday, you know, like Roy Holiday, that just sounds yeah. successful. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this this was uh, interesting also. And how um, they, they do they did the background check study where where is that wait didn't they do a background check study too the one with like the white what do you mean versus the black sounding names and the with like the resumes oh yeah yeah they yeah, talked so about the interview they right? had people who uh, they basically ran an experiment where. They gave people identical resumes, but one had a white-sounding name, and the other one had a black-sounding name. And I think the white-sounding name got more callbacks, didn't it? It did. Yeah, because I think, yeah, I don't know. That's that's really. I that's think that's you know, very messed up. up. But in the end of the, at the end of the day, I think that um, even like the black, like the um, like the white-sounding not. The white sounding name correlated to like a black person. Black person didn't end up getting the job anyway. I think it's interesting too because like uh, a lot of the people who have these types of names would come from like impoverished communities, so it's almost something that like they're like born into. Mm-hmm. That it like can be like hard to escape. So it shows that like does the name matter to an extent, but the name isn't necessarily a sole factor. Sole factor is really where they come from because that affects everything else. Right. Which includes their name. Yeah, that's kind of really, you know, and doesn't that lead yeah. into the epilogue? Yeah, so when he's summing the whole story up where all of Freakonomics and all of the concepts he's introduced, he's basically saying how people can think of a world in the new, in a new light or a different perspective, and that goes to show through incentives, conventional wisdom, parenting all the ins and outs of life really and everything that people face so he just really emphasizes that conventional wisdom is something we have to look past of so we can find the hidden details and find an overarching reason like roe v wade and uh and look, the crime rate, really that, that's so yeah that's such you, like, you know you need to, like understand the world in order to make sense of everything and see how things work in different interactions that way you won't be confused and um, I think this is interesting, like the way he tackles, like taking on new perspectives and kind of connecting things that you might not even think have anything to do with each other, like the sumo wrestlers and teachers. So, yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah, like comparing two different things and making them related like that, yeah. and it, it's it shows, just really it incredible like, to see someone think yeah. like that. It shows like different really patterns too, like, like, pe- like and basic like human incentives and motives. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Let's do book recommend recommendations, guys. Yeah, it was good. I would recommend it. Me too. Yeah, it might it, it might be on the same level as Rich Dad Poor Dad, you know. Mm-hmm. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I think this was, this was a pretty good book. 
I think it's just like such a um for me is such a perspective change. Like I am normally one to be like, oh well I heard this, but now I feel like even though I think some of this data obviously that Levitt picks out is cherry picked, I feel like cherry picked data is better than no data. <laughs> Hey, do you guys realize that we didn't even uh, give credit oh, to yeah. John? Oh, yeah. Who? Definitely, yeah. <laughs> the other author. Oh, shoot. <laughs> he, was, he didn't really emphasize Did they even mention though, him so in like... the book? Like, not in the... He was no, the journalist that studied Levitt, though. Like, it was really weird. Yeah, really. Didn't um, didn't that Harvard economist like uh, Roland guy? He didn't he write a book Stephen D. Levitt as well. He's somewhere in here. Yeah, and oh, and people who are listening, uh, Roland was was the guy uh, who was, was his name Roland. Who, who who came from the abandoned family. The, uh, yeah, like Roland, he, he, his mother abandoned him <laughs> at the. Oh my god. Okay, at the age of two, and then his uh his uh, dad was a yeah, drunk alcoholic who uh, beat him. Yeah, and he ended up being a Harvard economist. So that's interesting. Is that it? I think. Uh... Yeah. So, guys, yeah, that's that's the end of the third episode of the Business Holics, and podcast number four. Is we're thinking about making it on the minimum wage. If you have any suggestions, we'd be happy to look into it. And then book number book number three or podcast number five, which will come out at the end of December, is going to be on barbarians at the gate. So be sure to tune in. Um, you guys no. have anything else to add?